Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone. Spirit of the living God. Amen. Amen. Would you take a seat? That's a very nice song. I like that one. Um, Just so you know, it's not about me. It's amazing how difficult it is, it seems, to just write a good Christian song. And yet there is one. So many of them are just terrible. Uh, But that one is not. Um, Anyway, uh, good morning. Uh, So, as a kid, I I had this sort of strange thing, in fact, throughout my adult life, um, I would watch Roger Federer play play tennis and I would cry. I'm I'm not joking, I would cry when he hit a backhand or when he hit a forehand. Uh, And it was very strange, and then I realized what was going on was um, something that I continue to do (laughs) a little bit. I'm British, I shouldn't cry at all. Uh, But I would, um, it's seeing people do what they were created to do. Uh, I find it very moving. Uh, and it's, it's partly why I'm in this whole sort of church game, is helping people um, uh, be reconstituted, reconnected to their vocation in life. Um, so th- that's really the whole Christian thing, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But um, it's people uh, being given back their calling um, because... Um, that's what God's come to do, is to help people be who they are. And when I see people doing that, I find it moving. And so watching Tavia, who is a, a wonderful worship leader, lead worship, and the guys up there lead worship, I find it moving. And watching people prophesy, who used to not ever prophesy, but now do, um, and, and particularly one word spoke to me very powerfully. Um, I find it moving. Uh, and so I've been doing a bit of crying. I'm sorry, and I might cry through this. It's, but it's LA, isn't it? So we're all fine with that. Um, but really, it's, it's, you know, that's part of it. The other part of it is uh, it's the Spirit of God um, who is here speaking to us. And that's um, really what I'm responding to. I, I love him. And I want you to love him too. This could be fun. I've got thousands and thousands of words here of um, atonement theory. It's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be so exciting. Anyway, ah, uh, we're continuing our series on Romans. Um, we started last week, uh, and uh, just a quick recap. In the opening chapter, Paul references this depiction of a fairly um, familiar to both his Gentile Christian audience and his Jewish Christian audience of a sort of um, pagan cultic idolatry, readily visible um, in Rome and Corinth and all the Western world, in fact. These idols, he says, are nothing in and of themselves. They are but images of mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. However, when they take the place of the one true God, these idols, uh, when they take the place of him in our devotion, it is this very act of worshipping them. It is this very act of Uh, following them, of giving them glory that is not uh, rightly theirs. We actually imbue them with power. 
what happens when we worship things which are not God um, is our humanness, our God-reflecting, image-bearing vocation starts to fracture. In Genesis 1, humanity has been given this God-given power, a power to go out, to reflect, and be God's creative power and love into the world. But when we worship idols, that power we have is misdirected onto them, and then that power comes back at us in distortion. It distorts us in all sorts of tragic directions towards, as Paul says, ultimately every kind of wickedness and evil. Now, of course, few of us are bowing down worshipping actual handcrafted little Ken doll figurines, are we? Although, again, this is LA. I'm sure some people are. But that does not matter. I mean, that does not mean, does it, that we are not susceptible to devote ourselves to fixate and to pursue at huge cost other idol-like things. Fame, success, relationships, the big three, mammon, Aphrodite, Mars, the gods of money, sex, and power anything, even things good in and of themselves, which I think all of those things are, can quickly take on a destructive and manipulating potency when we order our lives around them, when we give them the power that it is not due their name. They ultimately lead to these consequences, says Paul, chapter 1, verse 31, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. But as I said last week, Paul's concern here is not primarily to do a takedown of pagan idolatry. Rather, he has used this um, to take his Christian listeners, both Jewish and Gentile listeners, on a journey. It begins by whipping up their righteous indignation about the folly of pagan idol worship, only to end up by exposing their just as serious self-righteousness, their judgmentalism towards all of it. It's this self-righteousness which, by the way, is worship of an idol just the same, the idol of the self. It's self-adoration. It's trusting in you beyond everything else. Perhaps it's the idol, therefore, of the American dream. Just throwing that out there as a non-American. It's this self-righteousness that is just as corrupted and corrupting as anything that the pagans have got up to. Indeed, the same way that the pagan idolatry has led to gossip and slander, for example, self-worship has led to stubbornness and unrepentance and wrath and trouble and distress. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 16 is that. So, whether you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, the issue for Paul is not whose idols are the worst. The issue is anyone having any of them at all in the first place. Because they all lead to the same thing. Now, this somewhat inevitably brings Paul at the start of chapter 2, to a question that might not be relevant for us, but I'm going to touch on it a little bit, which is, what then is the benefit of being Jewish? What's the point of having the law? The best way to understand this, because it's quite complicated, is to picture Paul the Christian having a full-on argument with a previous version of himself, Paul the Pharisee. Keep that in mind. Paul the Pharisee's zeal for the law was so all-encompassing that with dripping, pathos-ridden irony, Paul actually became an enemy of the God that he thought he was defending. 
the whole edifices of Paul, the Pharisees' ideology, came crashing down when Jesus, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God Paul has devoted his life to, reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus as the one, rather than the one he's following by his devotion to the law, but the one he is, in fact, through his idolatrous religious zeal, actually persecuting. So Paul the Christian says to Paul, the pre-Damascus road Pharisee, now, you, unlike some of the Christians I'm talking to in Rome, are, of course, not um, uh, hypocritical, self-righteous. You actually have fulfilled every aspect of the law. But that law-abiding behavior doesn't matter much, does it, Paul the Pharisee, when you also prove to yourself to be totally unrighteous in the eyes of God, an enemy of God, in fact, that unrighteous, persecuting God, in fact, that unrighteous. So shall we all just agree then that the law was never set up to make us righteous? After all, chapter 2, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, but from God. At which point, Paul the Pharisee would say, okay, chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Now, a certain amount of um, reading into Paul, the Christian's answer, needs to go on here just because what he says is so sort of skeletal, it's very thin. But these are the main takeaways. Of course the law was good because, verse 2, it was given by God, so it proved that God speaks. He tells us what he's actually like. The inference being that the pagan idols, they don't speak, they don't reveal God in any way at all. And secondly, having the law is beneficial, verse 4 and 5, because we know what it revealed was God's righteousness. Even when we were unrighteous, even when we rejected the law, God remained true because we had the law. And then finally, verse 20, it's beneficial because it revealed to us our sinfulness, not necessarily by showing us how wide of the mark we are, because Paul the Pharisee could say, well, actually, I'm not wide of the mark, I followed the law to the letter, but rather the law is there as a sort of sign that even though we have the law, we know from our own experience and and also from the um, uh, revelation of Scripture that we're still sinful. And so it's like the law is shining a big, bright, blinding white light. Even though we've got it, we're still sinful. Got it? Good. Not very interesting. Anyone followed the law recently? No. Okay. So, says Paul the Christian to Paul the Pharisee, the law is of some use. But it doesn't help with the fundamental problem, verse 9. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And Paul the Pharisee, as Jesus revealed, him to, revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus, must clearly and suddenly have realized, yes, I am still most definitely under the power of sin, am I not? Which leads Paul the Christian here to one of the most famous and important passages in the whole of Scripture which, backed by popular demand, Dixon is going to read to us. <laughs> yeah! Do you want this or do you want that? This is the good one right here. And I just have to say, there's so much pain this, with the law, and like this is, this is it. But now, far apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins of the committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So, talk of sin. I know that for some, it can feel a bit sort of archaic and passe. I do have some sympathy for this uh, view. Part of the problem, I think, is that the word sin can, found, can be found to our kind of modern ears um, a little bit out of date, can it not? For many, it belongs to this sort of bygone era of puritanicalism, a time when women shouldn't bear their ankles lest they cause men to fall into sin and presumably lest they cause men to have sex with their ankles, or something like that. <laughs> Sin these days is like ice cream. It's naughty but nice. Tri triple chocolate cup truffles, easy for me to say, are sinful. Or uh, it can be a little bit risque. Fifty Shades, it's a bit sinful, but it's still nice. Sin these days, you see, is always about the pleasurable consumption of something. More specifically, it's the pleasurable consumption of something that we know someone somewhere else really doesn't think that we should be enjoying, which is why it feels a bit naughty, but not in a serious way. It's just enjoyable mischievousness, isn't it? And so anyone who starts talking about sin, like me or like Paul, in terms of it not being a good thing, is quite clearly uptight, a killjoy, boring, religious, and probably a stinking hypocrite. So, for all of those reasons, I'm not going to talk about sin. Because this understanding of sin is not what Paul has in mind at all. What he means, and following importantly what Jesus might, means by the word that I am now no longer going to mention, is something much, 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 much bigger. It's as one writer put it, and I quote, in my excellent Alpha talk on the subject, it's the human propensity to F things up. This is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. It's also our active inclination to break stuff, be that moods or promises, relationships, our own well-being or other people's. It's the crack at the heart of everything. We F things up. And we're not simply talking about moral performance here. Jesus understands both our outer action and our inner motivation as part of the same problem. Murder proceeds from hatred in the same way that adultery proceeds from lust. It's all part of the crack at the heart of things. The reason I say this is because I think for many people we have lost the vastness of the issue here. Sin has become like a moral checklist, something you could write down on a post-it note, have I sinned today? But such a view distorts, one, our view of ourselves, our moral performance becomes all that matters, and we reduce ourselves to simply morality bots whose value is only in relation to how well we have behaved, 
what we're doing on the sinning front, as opposed to the glorious, whole, relational images of God with purpose and vocation and calling, the ones that we were created to be. And secondly, it distorts the view of God. God becomes like a school teacher or Father Christmas. Oh, no, you don't say that. Uh, Santa Claus. Know who he is? Yes. Just checking whether we are, have been naughty or nice recording a list of all our faults and working out what then we deserve. All of this is thoroughly unscriptural. The God of the Bible is the one who created humanity, not so that primarily we could be obedient to him, not even so that primarily we could worship him. God created humanity so that we could be with him so that we could partner with him in his creation. So the problem of sin is not primarily that God is displeased, it's that God is distant. That's what has happened. With it, we push him further and further away. And with it, we forego who we actually are. We lose our identity. Our identity is crumbled under its weight. We stop being the vice-regent, image-bearing co-creators with God. It all gets lost. But this, our identity, our closeness to God, our vocation, is precisely what the whole of this creation thing is all about. The whole of this universe is so that we can be the people God created us to be, to work with him in making this universe wonderful. Indeed, it's what God has first promised to Abraham and then to Israel. You will be my people. I will be your God. And through you, I will bless the whole universe. So, the question for Paul, therefore, is not how on earth is God going to punish our sin. Rather, it is in the light of the sin problem, how will God remain true to his covenant, the promises that he has made? How will he continue to be our God with us and lead us and restore our identity? Which is when, in verse 21, Paul talks about God's righteousness, that God's righteousness has been revealed. It's God's faithfulness and goodness to his original covenantal promises that Paul is referencing here. Sadly, a very different story has been told to many people about what the gospel says. And so I need to address it briefly. The horribly distorted version is the idea that God's wrath needs to be satisfied. Just show of hands, anyone grew up with this? Don't do it, you'll be all right. Probably too ashamed to raise your hand. What is needed is an escape from the anger of the deity. God is angry. We should actually receive his anger because of our sin. But, oh look, here's Jesus, wonderful. God directs all his anger on him, and we all go free. This is a peculiarly pagan notion. It is thoroughly unbiblical, and it's one which Paul would recoil at. So we would do well to flush it down the toilet of cosmic BS, where it deserves to remain forever and ever, because it's not doing us any good. In the Bible, the idea of wrath is entirely as a byproduct or a consequence of sin. It flows from it. It is not independent to it. So without sin, there would be no wrath. 
It's not part of God's character at all. And there is at least an argument to say that, in fact, wrath doesn't belong to God at all, ever. It belongs to us. We are the ones who created it. It's all the rage and anger and destruction and sinfulness, uh, sorry, that sinfulness causes. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates anger with murder. And on a number of occasions, Paul states that anger is a manifestation of our sinful nature. So given this condemnation of anger in human lives, how on earth can anger be equated to perfect God? The answer is, it cannot. If by anger we are talking about broken human sinful expressions of it. There is, of course, a precedent for righteous human anger. Jesus displays it on a couple of occasions, but let's be honest with ourselves, shall we, for a second. How often are we actually righteously angry? Like pure and noble and perfect and Jesus-like in our anger. If we're honest, most of the time when we're angry, we're irrational and uncontrollable, are we not? Our anger tends to be born out of animosity or malice or a desire for revenge or a sense of our pride being hurt. Let's be honest, we get angry and we want to take it out on someone. We want someone to pay, and we're going to enjoy it when we see that that has happened. This is the anger that Jesus and Paul vehemently, unequivocally condemn. And it has nothing to do with perfect God. The Bible says never that God loses his temper, that he's vindictive, that he's spiteful or malicious. He never flies off a handle or rubs our faces in it. So his attitude to sin is not thunderbolts and fiery eyes and steam coming out of his ears. These are pictures of neighboring, pagan, chaotic, unpredictable gods, which sadly have made their way into our general consciousness about what the God of the Bible is actually like. But the real God is not pacing around the room looking for someone to smite. Rather, the God of the Bible is covenantal from first to last, heartbroken that the objects of his love, the pinnacle of his creation, has lost its identity, has lost its image-bearing presence, and is separated off from him. So, any indignation towards evil that God has is purely an expression of his justice not some pagan idea of wrath. It is his settled, immovable attitude of perfect, righteous antagonism towards all brokenness wherever it is found. God's indignation towards evil is therefore not the flip side of his love. It's not like, oh, he has to balance out the grace with a little bit of justice to keep his God scales level. He's not Janus, the two-faced Roman God. He's not um, two-faced from Batman, flitting schizophrenically between one and the other. That's nothing to do with the steadfast God of the Bible, who's slow to anger and abounding in love. The opposite of God's justice is not God's grace. God's grace is of a whole different, complete category. It's of something completely beautifully and wonderfully different, and God's grace is his defining characteristic, which we'll come on to in a minute. The opposite of justice is not love. The opposite of justice is indifference. When you saw those pictures of Tyree Nichols being beaten to death, 
Did you not groan with indignation? Did you not weep at the injustice? Did you not scream at the TV? That is not right. How many more times? How much more do we have to see of this? Did you not? Did you not rage? And do you not want a God who does exactly the same? Who abhors evil? Who despises it with every fiber of his being? As opposed to a God who just stands idly by? What sort of God would that make him? Unmoved by human trafficking, turning a blind eye to murder and rape, unconcerned at the vitriol that people spew online to others that destroys people's lives. I don't want anything to do with a God who is not moved by any of that. So thank God that the God of the Bible is not like that. This is what makes God's righteousness, his just indignation towards sin, a very good thing indeed. So, given all this, what then happens on the cross? Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, which is a word that people have spent years and years debating, but ultimately, for our purposes, it's a shorthand means of saying a means of getting rid of sin. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. God presented him, or rather, God presented himself in Jesus. But we killed him. Jesus' death is not a just death at the hands of God. Jesus' death is an unjust death at the hands of humanity. In Jesus, God becomes human and lives a perfect, innocent, righteous life. He therefore merits the covenant blessings that humanity has foregone. And in his innocent, perfect death, he receives all human sin at the hands of murderous, sinful humanity. Sin it is that is condemned on the cross, not Jesus. As Paul has been arguing, all sin, including all Israel's sin, has up to now not been dealt with. Even the law, with its atonement practices and sacrifices, has not dealt with sin. Hence, all of us, Jew and Gentiles, are still under its power. In his forbearance, God has left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. They have not been dealt with. But now, verse 21, apart from the law of a completely different order and category to all that ritual rule-keeping and system of sacrifice, which is, by the way, I think we shouldn't read too much Old Testament categories into what Jesus does, but of course it's there because he's steeped in all of it. Nevertheless, what God has done in chapter 8, verse 3, is he has condemned sin in the flesh. He's condemned sin, not Jesus. So in Jesus, in his death, God deals with the root problem. He is like the right lightning rod of all sin, past, present, and future. All of it consumed in his body. And in his body, sin is given what it deserves. Annihilation. All your brokenness. 
all the promises you've broken, all your compromised treatment of people, all your I'm better than you and you deserve it, all your unforgiveness, all your self-relatedness, all your idol worship, and all mine, of course, which spend some time with me. It won't take long for you to see all of it in its horrible, hideous detail. All of it, and all of everyone's. Your greatest enemy. All of theirs. All of the whole history of sin is in that moment placed on Jesus, on his innocent body, and it's sentenced to death. It's why his final words are, it's finished. It is finished. So, of course, there is a substitutionary element to the cross. Jesus is experiencing the death of sin, which is not his, but ours. But it is not a just death. It is a totally unjust death. What, then, of the justice of God? Well, God's justice is satisfied entirely, not at the crucifixion, but at the resurrection. At the resurrection, Jesus is proved to be the innocent one he always was. And death cannot hold a sinless God-man. His resurrection is the reversal and reparation of all the sin that Jesus unjustly suffered. Jesus dies under the unjust judgment of humans about whom we should remember. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he is raised by the just judgment of God. God says this, see what I have done. I've killed it all. Death cannot hold me. Where is your sting? I'm alive and I am reigning. So the gospel is not God substituted himself to satisfy his own wrath. This is not biblical terminology at all. It makes absolutely no logical sense also. The gospel is exactly what Paul says it is. Acts 13. The good news that God has fulfilled his promises to our children in that he raised Jesus up from the dead. This is the gospel. Jesus is alive because death because sin, because evil, all of it could not hold it. It could not stay with him because he destroyed it, and it no longer has any power. Thank God. The gospel is God's covenantal promises to restore the world from Adam's curse, and it is fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. That's the gospel. So, after all that, which got a bit boring, let us consider what this means. It means God's not angry. John's gospel does not say God was so angry with the world he sent his only son. It said God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is love. He isn't angry. So we never ever need to doubt his love for us. Ever. Not once, not ever again. The cross stands as the defining moment in history that says God is for you. He loves you too much. 
He couldn't bear to be separated from you any second longer. He has proved that he never forgot his people, and he restored his covenant to the universe. He is entirely, utterly trustworthy and righteous. God is love, and he loves you. Secondly, it means that we never, ever need to pay our way or prove ourselves to him. In the light of the message of the cross, all our attempts to be good boys and good girls, to impress God, to make amends for our failures, they are utterly futile. We will never be good enough anyway, but he was and he is. And he's already done it for us. Such is the grace of God that he says, be free, you, go free from all religious or legalistic or moral obligations. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more and there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. You are justified freely by his grace, verse 24. Justified means to make right, to be reordered. He does it. He rights you. He righteouses you. You become something entirely new, whole new creations, but also something very old, what you were always supposed to be. Your status as his image-bearing co-creator is restored. You have vocation and meaning. Your purpose is renewed, and your connection to him is restored solely because of what he has done. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Belief here isn't something flimsy and weak. I kind of think I believe. Yeah, I think I believe. Christian belief is much richer and fuller than that. Christian belief is placing our whole lives in the hands of Jesus. That's what faith is. It's the faith that dies with him to sin and resurrects with him to life. It is at once both a once and for all choice and a lifetime of daily, hourly submission. I put my trust in Jesus. My anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. He will never let me down. Thirdly, finally, it means that change is possible. We are new creations because redemption has come. Verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is what happens to slaves when they are set free. Jesus chose not to come to Jerusalem and die on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, but rather the festival of Passover. And this is significant. This was the time when Israel celebrated God's deliverance from oppression and slavery. So the cross is the definitive moment of emancipation for the whole universe. We can be set free from all our hurts and pain. All your scars and losses, you can be set free from right now. In Colossians, Paul says this, On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of the world, the principalities and the powers, all societal, all religious, all familiar, all cosmic, all supernatural, and of course, all personal sinfulness, 
the sin that so easily ensnares us. He took all the power out of it and made a public display of them. He mocked it. That's what the cross does. It mocks evil and says, where on earth is your power now? Having triumphed over them through him. The truth is, many of us go through life carrying shame of things we've done and things done to us. Others of us go through life with unhealed wounds. The result of our own or other people's human propensity to F things up. Now, self-help and therapy and these sorts of things, um, medication, they can go some way to um, helping with the symptoms. But they don't get to the heart of the problem. Only Jesus can deal with the brokenness at the heart of things. And he does it by killing it. That's what's happened. And in killing it, setting you free so that you can enjoy the glory, the wonder of his relationship, so that you can have your vocation reinstated, who you actually are. Our problem is as much an identity problem as anything else. Do you know who you are? Allow Jesus to tell you. As we often say, Jesus is like the trash man of the world. He takes all our stinking bags of garbage, the stuff that we have been dragging around with us for what feels like a lifetime, the stuff we cannot rid ourselves of, no matter how many times we go to the gym or how many different diets we go on, no matter what we try to do to rid ourselves, it's still there, stinking. And Jesus says, give me your trash, give me your garbage, and I will burn it up forever. And it means his face is turned towards you. We can once again look into his eyes and see his love. So this is the gospel. What I suggest we do is we respond to Jesus. And we're going to take communion together now. But we respond to the real Jesus, not some horribly distorted version of who he is. And the real Jesus is here saying, will you place your life in my hands so that I can set you free? Will you actually reorder yourself to me so that I can reorder you to who you already were? Can I set you free from the things that dog you over and over again. Would you let me? All you have to do is say yes and see what he might do. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. So these are gifts of bread and wine.
is the gift of God himself to you. Would you like to receive them as they are intended so that his spirit, which Raoul's going to talk about next week, can be poured into you and you might be a spirit-filled person yet again? Free from guilt, free from shame, free from all the things that you drag around with you. As you take the bread and the wine, put your faith in Jesus once more. Leave anything that you need to leave behind in your pew as you come. And then experience Jesus' love, his unconditional, uncompromised love for you. Amen, amen.